Well, good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I'm so glad to be here with you as we continue our series, Baked Together. And in these last two weeks of the series, we're switching gears a little bit and looking at the lives of two of Paul's co-workers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And both of these co-workers of Paul, these fellow workers of the gospel, are, are men who are helping Paul serve the Philippians. And as we look at them and we think about how Paul interacts with them this week and then how they serve next week, we get a better sense of what it is that our calling is to be, whether we find ourselves more in the role of Paul as someone who is currently in leadership and working with other people or as those who may take on that mantle next. Because in some sense, as we'll see tonight, all of us are going to fulfill both of those roles in different ways throughout our lives. And so as we've concluded this section, or we're coming to a conclusion on this section of scripture that talks about what it looks like to be the church, I don't think it's just a coincidence that we get into this section on Timothy and Epaphroditus. I think we're meant to learn from them something that God wants us to see in how we serve. And so let's go ahead and come before our God whom we serve and then see what it is that scripture has for us tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and, and for this passage in which we see those who have faithfully served before us, serving your church, serving to proclaim your gospel. Lord, would you help us to, to see what you would have us to see, that we would know what it looks like for each of us to serve in the ways that you've placed us in, in our church communities, in our, our, our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, wherever we might be that we might be those who are truly servants of your gospel, who proclaim your good news. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is writing this, and that's part of what makes this so interesting. Paul is writing this in a situation that is highly unpredictable. He, he's in prison, as we've talked about before, and he doesn't know what the outcome will be. He, he thinks that God's going to have some more work for him to do, but he doesn't know. And so he is in a high-stress, uncomfortable kind of situation. And if you're like me, I don't like those sorts of situations. And it's been sort of mind-boggling over the last few weeks as we've been trying to move towards our launch at Little Hills. And we have all these building problems. I've shared a few of the details of those where we've had the roof leaking and then the drywall coming in and, and now repairs are going on. And there's so much uncertainty and it feels like there's so much that's out of control and it's a matter of trying to think, well, how does God want me to react to this? How, how am I supposed to understand these circumstances happening? And it's uncomfortable and it's challenging. And then it's challenging because we have to count on other people being involved in those circumstances and, and figure out how to pull it all together. And, and Paul isn't dealing just with a building that has some issues. Paul is dealing with a matter of life and death. He may be executed. He has a, a good case. He's been charged wrongly. He's a Roman citizen. He should be able to go before Caesar, as he's appealed to do. He should be able to go before him and get a good verdict. But even in the best of court systems, we know that doesn't always happen. And Paul doesn't know when he's going to have a chance to seek justice, and he doesn't know if he's going to get it. So he's in the midst of a very uncertain situation while still trying to lead the church and we know from Paul's letters and we know from Acts that Paul was, was using that to good measure, that he was serving the gospel well. Luke tells us at the end of the book of Acts that the gospel was being 
communicated in an unhindered fashion as Paul ministered from house arrest. So, so Paul was making good use of this time, and yet he had to live with a lot of uncertainty. And while he felt a certain calling from God to, to communicate the gospel, he didn't know how exactly it was going to work. Now, we don't like that kind of uncertainty. Like I said, I don't. But we like to have nice organized programs as, as churches, don't we? We announce the dates they're going to happen. We plan them. Everything's supposed to go according to plan. We don't always like it when things don't go according to plan if we're leading it or if we're participating in it. And, and so it's challenging. But here Paul needs to go to, to Philippi. He wants to go to Philippi. He wants to encourage the Philippians. And he can't because he's under house arrest in Rome. And so he's dependent on these two fellow gospel servants, two men that, that he knows, that he trusts, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and he has to live in the uncertainty, even as he's trying to figure out when to send them and how to send them and all these sorts of things. And we see that if we look at verse 19, we'll pick up from where we were last week. Notice what Paul says here. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. A few verses later, in verse 24, Paul says, And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Verse earlier, in verse 23, we, he talks about how he's waiting to find out what's going to happen to himself. So the, the language he's using here it sounds very good in a way, and it, it, it is good. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus, in verse 19. He says, I trust in the Lord, in verse 24. He's doing the right things, but note what that implies. He doesn't say, I am coming to you soon. He doesn't say, I know that, you know, I have my, my chariot ticket. I'm ready to, to head to Philippi next week. I know I'm going to be there. What does he say? He says he trusts in the Lord that he will come soon. He, he's trusting that God's plan is going to work. But right now, Paul has to embrace uncertainty. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know how the Spirit's going to work in this moment. He just has to trust. And if you were with us last night for this week at Little Hills as we're going through our series through the Psalms, I shared about Psalm 42 as part of that. And it, it strikes me how it parallels what we're talking about here because of the uncertainty that's going on in the psalmist's life. Take a look at Psalm 42 for a second. Verse 9. The psalmist says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why did I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with deadly wounds in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast Oh, my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist throughout Psalm 42, and we'll be looking at that this week on grow.faithtree.com, the psalmist is wrestling with the circumstances in his life that aren't going according to plan. He's out of control, and he's struggling to remind himself he needs to focus on the Lord and find hope in him. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here, too. And, and it seems that he's very hopeful in it, although we, we know that Paul's a human being. He surely is wrestling with some of this uncertainty. We know he doesn't want to be stuck, unable to minister to the Philippians. 
But the starting point to serving and the starting point to being effective in his current situation, but in every situation, is to trust the Lord in it. And, and that's so much easier said than done, isn't it? I think we know that. It, it sounds really easy when when you have one of those mountaintop experiences and everything feels like it's great and you feel like God's right alongside you for a moment until we go into trusting ourselves again and then forget that God's the one that put us there anyway. Um, it feel, But it feels easier in those moments. When everything feels uncertain, and we don't know how to pull all the pieces together. We, we maybe even have some of the pieces out there, but we're not quite sure how to get them all into place rightly. It's hard. And that's where Paul is. He has to hope in the Lord Jesus. He has to hope in his God that, that these things are going to come together. But by starting with a point of trust, he's then able to turn to those whom he's serving with. And encourage them. And we see that in the way that he speaks of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he speaks to them, speaks of them to the Philippians. He can speak of them so highly as we're going to see in these next few verses. Because he trusts the Lord and he trusts that God is working in his fellow workers. That the others that are doing gospel work are also called by the Lord. And so even though Paul is stuck in prison, he's not saying, oh, if only I could be there, everything would be okay. No, he's focused on how do I enable these other men to go and serve faithfully? How do I take these others who are Christians and encourage them and encourage the people around them to accept them and to use them? And we see that throughout Paul's ministry. Later in his life, he writes in 2 Timothy, uh, one of the last bits we have from Paul, he's encouraging Timothy. And just listen to how Paul writes out his story and Timothy's story as he seeks to encourage Timothy in his ministry. He says in verse 3, I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul's going through another uncertain time there. He knows that his life is coming to an end. And he knows that, that Timothy is the one that's going to be doing the work now. Paul's not going to be there forever. And so what does he do as he writes Timothy and he's encouraging him in that moment? He, he does a number of notable things. First, 
He shares his own story. He knows that for generations, his family has sought to serve the Lord. And they've passed down the teachings of who God is generation to generation. He says, that's my story, but it's also your story, Timothy. And he reminds Timothy of how his grandmother and his mother shared the gospel with him. And now, and now Timothy is there. He, he's inherited that, and he's inherited what he's learned from Paul, his spiritual inheritance from Paul. And Timothy is going to now run the race that Paul has been running. He's going to take over. It's going to be a new generation because Paul knows that his time's coming to an end. Each of the apostles' time was going to come to an end, just as we know ours will too. But in that, Paul wants Timothy to know that Paul is confident in what God is doing. And that's what we see at the end of that passage, that, that he says that he trusts that, that Jesus is going to bring about his good plan in his own time, even if things seem uncertain in that moment. And that's an important thing to tell Timothy because it surely feels uncertain for Paul, but it also surely feels uncertain for Timothy. Here is this, this mentor of his, this, this dear friend of his in Paul. And he's going to continue the work of Paul, but he's going to continue it without Paul. Paul wants to remind him that, that God is faithful in that. And that's exactly what he's doing back in Philippians 2 a little bit earlier. He's not handing over the ministry entirely yet. But here's an important thing. When he hands that over to Timothy in, in, in the pastoral epistles, as he's writing First and Second Timothy and going over how to run the church with Timothy, he's summarizing things. He's making sure Timothy hears everything that he needs to hear. But this isn't the first time that Timothy's been entrusted with ministry. We see here in Philippians that Timothy is entrusted. We see in the other scriptures that, that Timothy is entrusted. Paul doesn't just wait and, and hold on to everything until the moment that he can't any longer and then hand it to Timothy. Second Timothy is more the capstone, pulling all together. But right here we see his trust. He's going to send Timothy to do what he can't do in Philippi. He's going to commend Timothy to the Philippians. They, they know Timothy, but Paul is going to remind them of that commendation so they fully understand that, that Timothy is the one that should be there with them right then. And he can do all that because he's trusting in God. He's trusting that God's working not only in his own life in the midst of this uncertainty, but also in Timothy's life. And that can be a scary thing. It's a scary thing as we're thinking about this church plant and and a number of us who've been involved in it for a number of years are, are now thinking in terms of, well, how do we go from planning and putting together some, you know, some mission statements and websites and, and even the, the live stream to a fully functioning church body in person where, where different people are bringing in their gifts and, and ideas and, and contributing. And of course, many of you have already been contributing in different ways, serving but to pull it all together, that's an intimidating thing. And I think it is for all of us because there's a lot of uncertainty there. And then you throw in things like this building and it, it feels very uncertain. And even if you're tuning in tonight and you're, you've never heard of Little Hills and you're just listening to scriptural teaching, I, we could say that about any church. There's a lot that feels intimidating. And there's a lot that feels intimidating in the constant transitions in it and in our own lives as we try to figure out how to play out our callings. And... and it's hard to figure out how to deal with that. I was reading, apparently, I just, I think it was this week that the Airbus took 
an Airbus 380, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that's their largest plane they've ever manufactured. They took it and flew it on primarily used cooking oil. And they've done it on partial cooking oil before, but this time 90 plus percent of what it was running off of was used oil from frying things. And you look at this plane for a moment. I look at this plane and I think, what would it be like to know that you were flying this plane for the very first time on cooking oil? Feel a little uncertain, wouldn't it? I, I don't know that I would want to be one of the people on the plane when it goes up for the first time that way. And they didn't start with this plane. They're doing it in phases. They started with smaller planes, but here they take this giant plane that can go up as, as high as any commercial jetliner and, and can go thousands of miles, do transcontinental flights, and they fly it in cooking oil. I don't know if I'd want to do that. Let's just stick with the stuff we already know works. But it's fascinating. I was reading about what this cooking oil does. And, and of course, part of it is trying to get away from oil and, and, and deal with oil shortages and deal with pollution and all these sorts of things, sustainable development. But also in the midst of it, apparently, they found that these jets actually run more efficiently on, on this reused, recycled cooking oil than on normal jet fuel. And, and as they're flying, they put out less emissions that make the air unpleasant to breathe. So it can go farther, it can it can run more efficiently, and it pollutes less, and it's using something that's a waste product, something that we use to, to have french fries and such. Probably even smells good if you're behind the plane, if you were somehow able to levitate behind it. It probably is, it, it, wouldn't that be amazing? But you think about it, it'd be really easy to say that's too risky. And of course they've put lots of planning into it, and they're not just, you know, dumping some oil from their kitchens into this plane and taking it up into the sky, there's been serious planning behind it, and yet there's still risk whenever you test something new. And that's what God is calling us to embrace, that uncertainty in our own lives and in our own ministry as we come together as the body of Christ, that not that we're reckless, we don't just go and grab the cooking oil from our kitchen and dump it into our little plane and take off and hope it takes off. We, we, we do due diligence, we study God's word, we we use common sense, and we're trying to do that, of course, at Little Hills. But then we have to embrace the uncertainty because here's the thing, and, th and this is what Paul is doing here too. Paul could have said, you know, it's too uncertain to, to give this ministry to, to Timothy and to Epaphroditus. They might not do it the way I would. They might mess up. The people might not listen to them. It'd be better if I wait. It'll be more certain if I wait until I get out of prison. And, and I'm going to get out of prison because my case is just, and, and then everything will be great. But that wouldn't be the most efficient way to do ministry because ministry would have come to a screeching halt until Paul was freed, if he were freed. And if he weren't freed, if he were executed, what would have happened to the ministry if Paul weren't constantly empowering and entrusting those who served with him to go and do the ministry that God had called him to do and them to do? And so we take that scary step, that uncertainty in ministry, because just like that plane runs better now, apparently, on cooking oil, God's work, his church runs better when we're using all the, the teaching and the knowledge and the abilities we have, and we take our own abilities and we use them as cooking oil to empower other people to go and do ministry as well. There's a problem with that, though. And it's that scary step, just like 
the first time that plane takes off in cooking oil. It's a scary step. And, and that scary step is to see that we aren't the central character in the story. It'd be really tempting as, as the apostle of the Gentiles, the, the apostle who's going all over and everyone's wanting to hear what Paul has to say and is anticipating his letters and so on to see himself as in some sense the central character of the story. But Paul knows he isn't. And that's why he's able to write what he says in these verses. Take a look back in verse 19 and then on to 20. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now, Paul, of course, knows Timothy, but so do the Philippians. And so commentators have said, well, why did Paul need to say there's no one like him that's going to be more trustworthy with your welfare, no, more, no one who's going to be more concerned with you than Timothy? Well, he's doing that to make sure that the Philippians know that Paul is putting his full support behind Timothy. It's not, well, you know, it'd so, be so much better if I were there, but, you know, give the kid a chance, he might do an okay job. That's not what he's doing. Instead, what he wants is that when Timothy arrives, the people don't say, oh, we really wish we could see Paul, but we'll live with Timothy. No, he doesn't want them to be disappointed because they're lacking a visit from him. He wants them to be excited because they have a visit from Timothy because God is working in Timothy's life. Timothy is a fellow worker of the gospel. And, and so Paul here is recognizing Timothy's worth and reminding the Philippians of Timothy's worth so that they understand that the, the church is what matters and the gospel is what matters. It doesn't matter if Paul's the one that's coming to encourage them or Timothy's the one that's coming to encourage them. What matters is that the work of Jesus is going forward. We see that in the way that Paul speaks of Epaphroditus too. Take a look at verse 25. He said, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. So just as a little background, it appears that Epaphroditus had been sent by the Philippians to, to help Paul. And now Paul needs to send Epaphroditus back to them to do work. And notice how glowingly he speaks of Epaphroditus. Let's look at that again. Notice this. He refers to Epaphroditus as my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. He doesn't just say, you know, that guy you sent me that, that did some stuff to help me. No, he says, here's my brother and here's a fellow worker in the gospel, not my my inferior officer in the gospel, but a fellow soldier. We're both out in the battle together. That's Epaphroditus. I want you to know that's how I view Epaphroditus. And so Paul there again is saying to the Philippians, and we'll think more about the full ramifications of that and why he's saying that about Epaphroditus next week. But he's saying to them, I want you to know how I view Epaphroditus. I view him as a colleague, as someone who's right there with me. Someone worthy of doing the work of the gospel. And that's, again, part of this, this transition where Paul doesn't want them to see him as the central character, as him as the way that they get their teaching and their encouragement in the church. But all of them together as working together to do the work of the church. Back in 2 Timothy again, take a look at chapter 2, verse 2. Paul encourages Timothy with this charge, he says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men 
will be able to teach others also. That's what Paul tells Timothy to do. And that's what Paul is doing here with Timothy and with Epaphroditus. He's saying, here are two faithful men. Here are two faithful fellow Christians. Here are two people who are redeemed by Jesus, who have shown themselves to be faithful. This is not a reckless choice to take two people who have served with Paul and to send them. The reckless thing, as much as it's contrary to our our own sort of inclinations and reflexes, would be not to send them to try to do it himself, and and if he can't do it, to let it fall. But what we're called to do, what Paul recognized he was called to do, and what he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy that that Timothy is called to do, is to be constantly encouraging who's going to be next. To constantly be encouraging those around us, you can go and do the ministry as well. You have gifts to go and serve. That's true of all of you watching tonight. Each and every one of us has been called by God, and and in that we have a way to fulfill that calling. And and so, first off, we need to recognize our own calling and and pursue it. But then in that, we need to see in every single case, there's going to be a chance then to encourage others in their calling. And maybe it's taking gifts that that we have and, and feeding it into other people and then encouraging them to go and do something. Or simply going to someone who's discouraged and encouraging them. God is using you in this way so that they recognize that God is. And certainly in our churches, we have to be doing that. We have to be thinking in, in terms of how do we, we focus on the others around us, loving them and entrusting things into them, into their lives, and, and then encouraging them to do the same so that, that the church doesn't become just a very comfortable little family. It should be that. But a growing family that's constantly bringing in new people, ministering to them, equipping them, and then entrusting them to go and do the same with other people. Years ago, after I graduated seminary, I went back to my old college to teach for a number of years. And I that was really, I was so excited to be there. I loved my professors when I was in college. I couldn't wait to serve with them. But arriving there, it, it, they still felt like my professors. I'd only been away for four years. I had stayed in contact with some of them. And and of course, as a good, respectful student should, you refer to your professors as Dr. So-and-so or Professor So-and-so, probably without the so-and-so, unless it's really their name. Uh, but you refer to them by a title. You don't refer to them by their first name because there's this decorum in academia. And, and so I arrived back and here I was back with my professors. Now I was teaching and students were calling me Professor Butler, but but when I'd run into one of my old professors, I'd say, hello, Professor so-and-so or Dr. so-and-so. And I remember one day I was walking out of my office and I, I saw one of the professors. I had actually never had her in class, but I had been at various student functions when she was leading them as a professor. And, and I saw her and I said, hello, Dr. Duchamp. And she stopped me and she said, You're, you, you should call me Rachel. You're one of my colleagues now. We were serving together here. And it struck me. It really stuck with me, and it was sort of, it took me aback for a second. And it took me a little while to get comfortable with actually calling her Rachel. And then several of the, my other colleagues during that time there, who had been professors of mine, told me the same. And it, it struck me that they weren't seeing me merely as a former student, but now they were seeing me as a fellow worker. It, it meant so much that now we were coming at these these challenges that we were facing together, seeking to teach students and encourage them and equip them, 
and we were doing it together. We were fellow workers, fellow soldiers. Sometimes in the church, we run into the problem that while we may not use all those titles, when people come into the church and are discipled, we continue to see them as the former students. And we want them to continue to see us as Dr. So-and-so and Professor So-and-so, even if we don't use the titles. And that's when the church runs into trouble, when we stop seeing new colleagues and we keep seeing past students. Paul here could view Timothy and Epaphroditus as that, as past students, as those who, who had been under his, his instruction. But that's not where he stops. He says, you don't need to call me doctor, you need to call me Paul. We're serving together. We're fellow workers. And not only do I want you to know that personally as we relate to each other, I want the Philippian church to understand that's how I see both of you as well. And it's so important that we do that, that we communicate that to those around us and to those whom they might be serving, that we're constantly building up a larger and larger collection of future colleagues and not former students. Because we're serving together. That's what God wants us to recognize. Yes, there are going to be times that we need to be taught. But then we need to be taking those whom we teach and looking back when we were taught. And seeing now that we feel called to serve and seeing that calling in them. We don't want to be a church of former students, but of new colleagues. And when we do that, the church moves forward and God's gospel is proclaimed in new and wonderful ways. It can be a little scary, but it can certainly be absolutely wonderful and beautiful. Let's pray that God's spirit would give us the confidence to take flight on the oil of his gospel. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, uncertainty is hard and trusting in you is hard. We know you are faithful and yet we wonder at the times that things are uncertain, like the psalmist faced the question, where is your God? And, And sometimes we wonder what you're doing, where you are. And yet, we know that you call us to trust in you. And as we trust in you, then to trust in those whom you have called to help each other, to equip each other, and to empower each other, and to see each other going out and doing the same with others that your church might expand. May we see that you've given us the callings that we have by your grace. We haven't earned them. And likewise, then, See the grace that you're pouring into others, that all might know you, and that your church might be healthy as we we celebrate the diversity of the gifts that you've placed in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if this has been an encouraging message to you tonight, I would be so grateful if you would give it a like or a share. You can help us to, to, to have more people hear about what God's Word says by doing so. It's one of the ways that we can equip each other and reach out to those who may not have heard yet. We have this wonderful online medium, and we're going to continue to run with it here at Little Hills, even as we meet in person. And so if you would help in part by going and sharing this, I would be so grateful. And of course, leave some comments below if you have comments or questions or thoughts about it. That's always great as well. Speaking of meeting in person, we are looking forward to that. We're hoping to meet in person starting on April 10th. That's less than a week away. That's this Sunday at 5.30 p.m. And and I would love to have you there either in person if you're able or online if you're not, if you're, if you're far away, if you are 
not feeling well, whatever the case may be, you can join us online as well. But please do join us at 5.30 p.m. on Sunday for our launch service. We are still seeing the pieces come together. And so as I was talking about tonight, it feels a little uncertain right now and a little nerve wracking trying to see how all this is going to come together. But here's what we know. We know God is working. We know that God's working in, the, in, in his church here at Little Hills and far beyond the, the walls of Little Hills. And we just want to share that with you. I want to share that with you because it's a delight to serve and to share in the joy of our Lord together. One of the ways we can encourage each other and equip each other is digging into God's word together. And that's what I love about our ongoing Psalm series. Here are this week's readings, as you can see on screen. Today, if you can read Psalm 40, Psalm 41 by Wednesday, and Psalm 42 by Friday. And as you do, please check out grow.faithtree.com. You may get tired of hearing about it, but, but go over there and leave a comment or a question about your reading through God's word this week. Because as we, as we discuss it together, we can encourage and equip and empower each other all the more to apply it in our lives. If you have any prayer requests or questions this week, feel free to shoot me an email at the email address on screen or leave a comment in the comments below. I do love to hear from you and I can't wait to share in more of what God is doing with you in the days and weeks ahead. Hopefully I'll see you on Sunday and then back here on Monday night. Have a wonderful and blessed week.